Open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and today we will be reading verses 1 through 7. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's pray. Father, we are sobered as we come to your word this morning. Gone are the two chapters where all creation is obedient to you, where the man and the woman exist in peaceful harmony with you and with one another and the rest of creation. Now enters the enemy. Now comes temptation. Now comes one who questions your word who would sow doubt in the minds of your people. And so this is a sobering passage for us. Father, I pray this morning as we have your word open before us, which tells us the truth about our origins, the truth about why we see the things we do in this world, in the lives of those around us, and even in our own heart. Pray that you would minister to us this morning by your Spirit, from your Word. Pray that we would be engaged in this discussion, that we would be engaged with Your Word, and that in this we would see not only the origin of our own sin, and the origin of the sin that has corrupted this world, but that we would see hope, that we would see our need for a Redeemer and that we would see your promise of that Redeemer. 
So we pray for your blessing on these next few minutes that you would work in our hearts by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage today is, uh, we're only going to deal with the first five verses. And I know verses 1 through 7 uh, go together very well, and so that's why I read what I did. And uh, the intention is to focus on verses 1 through 5 this week, and then uh, the next time we will look at verses 1 through 7 together. But there was something specific in here that I wanted us to look at, and that is the strike of the serpent. How exactly the temptation came? What was the target? What were the tactics? And uh, what were the weaknesses that uh, caused this to come about the way it did? And so this week we're going to answer these questions. How did temptation first come to the human race? Temptation is something common to us all, but how did temptation first come? What, what form did that temptation take? And this is, this is an important question for us, not just because this is the Bible and this is the origin of all things and we're discussing uh, the past and we're discussing uh, those sorts of theological concept or it was long ago and so we need to understand it because it uh, relates to our origins, but we face temptation. You and I face temptation, and it comes in much the same way. And so we, we see a pattern here from the, the words of the serpent, the tactics, etc. And so we want to look at those words and look at those tactics today for our own lives, not just to examine what happened long ago, but to look and understand temptation and how it comes to us today. And I want us to notice right off the bat, how the serpent is introduced in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. When we're introduced to this character, first of all, he's a serpent. That seems a little odd. But the thing that really stands out to us is that he is crafty. And when a character is introduced to us as crafty, And not just a little crafty, but more crafty than any of the others. We ought to pay attention to what he says. The author is trying to tell us that we need to listen closely to his words. We need to examine what he says. We need to to look for double meaning. We need to look for hidden intentions. We need to look for the thrust, the strike. And so that's our uh, serpent who is introduced to us as more crafty than any of the others. So we ought to pay attention to what his tactics will be. And we're going to work through just uh, three of these tactics as, uh, as I kind of see them working out in the questions here. But first, the first tactic is he's, he's doubting God's Word. Doubting God's Word. This serpent, who is more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, said to the woman, we'll set aside how odd that is that a serpent would speak to the woman, there are things there that, that are uh, fascinating and, and, and would uh, be good for us to look at, but I want to focus on his words. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He starts by doubting God's Word. He asks a question, and Sometimes we can think that there are no bad questions, 
you know, only the ones that are not asked, right? But there are different types of questions, aren't there? And this question is not an innocent question. It's not a question just learning, uh, seeking to learn knowledge. There is a, a treacherous type of questioning of God's Word that is destructive to the faith. And that's what this kind of question is. I think to understand the nature of his question, we need to look back into chapter 2. Look at verses 16 and 17. Back in chapter 2, to hear the words that are being referenced here, we need to read what was actually said. The Lord God commanded the man in 2.16 saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the days that you eat of it, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Those are the words as they were spoken. Those are the, uh, the commands as they were actually given with the appropriate prohibitions and, and cautions and all of that stuff. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Well, now we go back to chapter 3 and we look at the serpent's words. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did He accurately quote, accurately reflect on God's Word as it had been given in chapter 2? Well, no. He added one little word, one little addition to what God had said. And by doing so, he destroyed and distorted the whole thing. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Right? Just by that, that word, just by that little uh, focus, that little question, it changes the statement. It changes what God had said. It distorts it. it I think we're, we're aware of how much damage can be done to God's word when we remove something from it when we're tempted to ignore a portion of God's Word or, or ignore certain topics or whatever, we, we realize that that recasts God's Word in a different light. But likewise, when we add something to God's Word, we recast it in a different light. And that's the nature of the question that the enemy asks here, just by adding that little word, any. And what had God said? He said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, except this prohibition. But you may surely eat of every tree. And so the, uh, the enemy questions that one little part, and we see, uh, we see him questioning God's character. We're going to get to, to that a, a little bit later on, but, but it is pretty amazing to see the serpent say, did God really say? Did God really say that? That you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Really? What, I mean, what are you supposed to live on? What, what does God expect you to eat? That's kind of the nature of the question. Well, we see the woman's response. You look at verses 2 and 3, you see her response there. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And so, this is her response to his questioning uh, of her, his questioning of God's Word. This is what she responds with. And notice that she does an okay job 
She knows what she's talking about, it seems, as she refers back to what God had said, but notice that she left out the word freely. She left out the word surely. God had said, you may surely eat, or some translations say, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden. There's a tone there. There's a tenor. Take your pick. (laughs) All you want, that tree or the, the one next to it that's a little different or any of them or all of them. Right? There's an emphasis in what God had said on the abundance of His provision. And notice the tactic uh, of the enemy, and then notice the response of the woman. And she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. No, no, we, we, we can eat. God has provided food for us. You see how that's different than what God had said? The emphasis in what God had actually said is on the abundance of the provision. It's wonderful. It's glorious. You could try a new fruit every day. Right? God's God's provision is wonderful. And her response is, no, God said we could eat. No, we, we got lunch today. Never mind that it was a feast provided by God and it was glorious. Uh, the way she responds is, well, you know, we got to eat. We get to eat when we're here. So there's, there's something going on there. Uh, she also doesn't name the name of the tree, which may become significant. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she calls it the tree in the midst of the garden. And so there may be something missing there, but notice the extra prohibition that she throws in there. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. I mean, look over at 2.16 and 17. Had God said anything about touching? He said, don't eat of it. She apparently adds this. What she says is not in line with what had been said before. God had simply said, don't eat of it. And she says, don't eat of it or even touch it. Right? So she's, she's responding sort of with God's word, but there's a little bit of a twist. There's a little bit of a change. She left out freely. God's abundant provision was was glorious and wonderful, not meager and miserly. She skips on the name of the tree, and she adds this extra prohibition, don't touch. And don't we do that to God's Word? Sometimes we want to build a fence around it. God said this thing is what we ought to stay away from, but it would be easier if you just stayed away from this thing also that God's Word doesn't actually say. She adds to God's Word, and then there's another problem with her interpretation. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Lest you die. She, she recognizes that there will be consequences for disobedience, but the way she words it is a little bit weaker. Look at, look at how God had worded it back in, in uh, 2.17. You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's a strong emphasis on death is coming if you do that. You will die the death, guaranteed, period. That's going to be the consequence. There's an emphasis on it. It's underlined. It's highlighted. It's in bold letters. And when she says it, well, you're not supposed to eat it, neither shall you touch it lest you die. There's a chance, perhaps, if you touch that. There's a chance, perhaps, if you eat of this fruit, there might be consequences to you, and they might even involve 
your death. But that's different than God's word, and God's wording had been strong. You will surely die. And she changes that. And so uh, you see here her representation of God's word is problematic. More on that in a minute. He, he moves on from what she said. Look at verse 4. He, he moves from doubting God's Word to denying God's Word. Look what, uh, what we see there in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. He goes back to the wording that God had used, surely die, dying the death. Emphasis strong. He goes back to God's language, but he negates it. Oh, that's not going to happen. You're worried about something that's never going to come about. You will not surely die. And so he immediately moves from doubting God's Word to denying God's Word. Just flat out denies God's Word. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so... He starts with a little bit of a question, uh, causing a little bit of a crack in the understanding of God's Word, in the, in the confidence in God's Word, and then he drives a giant wedge right in there and, and outright denies what God had said. This is a bold move. And notice the tactic here. And this is a tactic that we need to be aware of, right? Uh, we, we have this image of you know, the attacks of the enemy, perhaps, or the, the lies of the enemy, as if we will easily recognize them, right? It'll be a giant lie, like, like uh, someone comes on the scene and says, you know, hey, Christian, did you know there is no God? Well, <laughs> we're pretty aware that's a lie, right? And so we can spot that, we can address that, we can, we can deal with that head on. That's not normally the way the enemy brings the lie. Normally, it's a little tiny twisting first. Did, did you know that uh, you can't really trust the reliability of the Bible? That uh, Genesis, yeah, it's just a myth about where we came from, and, and uh, it's just a story that was told in the Jewish world, and, and uh, yeah, it has some lessons, kind of like Grimm's fairy tales or, or some, something like that, but, but it's not really history, right? That's step one, causing just a little sliver of doubt. And then a few steps down the road in that conversation, you get the idea that someone will argue that, you know, that the Bible really is just, uh, it's, it's the people who wrote about their religious experience, their religious thoughts. And so, yeah, there's good stuff in there. There is, there's some really inspiring kind of stuff, but it's not actually the Word of God. <laughs> it's not as if God actually spoke to us, right? And a few more steps down the road, that's because there actually is no God. Right? Religion is, is just for, uh, to, to make our lives better and more comfortable and to give, a, give purpose to our lives. And See, that's the path the lie takes. It starts off with a tiny little crack. Did you know God's Word is not trustworthy in this way? And then he drives a larger and larger wedge into that. You know, I watched a man one time split a stump, and it was a sizable stump, and he did so using slivers of wood from other stumps, just tiny little slivers of wood. He didn't have a wedge. He didn't even have an axe, a hammer, or anything. He just looked at this stump, 
and he saw that there was a tiny little crack. So he took a, the smallest little wedge of wood, just a, just a little sliver, and he tap, 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 real slow and tap that in there just with another stick. And then he would lay it over and he would see there was a little bit more of a crack and so he would take another sliver, just the tiniest little wedge of just wood out in the woods. Tap, 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 tap. And he split the wood with these tiny little cracks of things that, you know, the, you expect. I've split wood in my life, my life and, and I like to use an axe or I like to use a, you know, a maul or a hammer and wedge and, 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 uh, and things like that, right? That's the normal way to do it. That's, that's an open frontal assault. And the enemy doesn't usually bring open frontal assaults. He works on the tiny little cracks. And that's what we see happening right here. He starts with, with doubting God's Word and creating doubt within the woman. And only then does he move to denying God's Word. The crack starts small. I want to I notice uh, in this, this uh, response of the serpent to the woman, you shall not surely die that he's, he's actually dealing with, and his argument is, is against her understanding of God's Word more than against God's Word directly. The assault he brings is made possible because of the way she represents what God had said, the way she misrepresents what God had said. You see, her, her presentation of, of what God had said was presenting God in a fashion as if, well, it seems like He's really kind of keeping something from us. Because, yeah, He gave us lunch. Yeah, He said we could eat of the trees. But that's different than saying we can freely eat of the trees. She's, got, she, she's beginning to have a notion, that, a, a representation of what God had said as if God is keeping things from them. When the nature of the command was eat freely and abundantly. And when, when she adds the prohibition, he said not even to touch it. Well, he hadn't said that. You see, she's, she's beginning to develop an understanding of God that is contrary to who he actually is. She's developing an understanding of God's Word that is different from what it is in actuality. And as she does this, as she's, as she's changing those things and she's She's misunderstanding God's Word. She adds to it, yeah, we can't eat of it lest we die. You know, there's, a, there's an outside chance there could be negative consequences to us if we die. It's in response to that that now the enemy says, you're not going to die. I know you think there's an outside chance you're going to die. You're not going to die at all. God's actually up to something entirely different. Yes, you, you kind of thought God was a little miserly. You thought he was being kind of, kind of rude when he was keeping these things from you and, and threatening you with consequences. Th those consequences aren't real. You see, his, his assault, and this is important for us to see, is made possible because she misunderstands God's Word. So when her misunderstanding of God's Word is made clear, that gives handholds to the enemy, a way, for, a way for him to grab her and grapple her and, and wrestle her down by her misunderstanding of God's Word. One man rightly said, the Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. I completely agree with that. 
by her misunderstanding of God's word, by her misunderstanding of the lion, she was not letting the lion defend itself. She was making a presentation of her own that was different from God's word. And I think that's an important part of what we want to look at this morning is the accurate understanding of what God's word says. But let's, let's look at uh, how the, the enemy moves here from uh, doubting God's Word to denying God's Word. And finally, we see it very, very clearly in verse 5, what we already saw back in the beginning a little bit, the defaming of God's character. The defaming of God's character. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God knows that if you took of that, you would have something that he's a little jealous of you to have. He doesn't want you to have. Um, he, he, he knows that that will have certain benefits to you, and he's trying to keep those from you. And so this is casting doubt upon God's motivation. Why is it that God would give us certain prohibitions? Well, it seems like he wants us to have no fun, right? That's what, that's what so many of uh, our unbelieving family members or friends around us, you know, think about Christians, so what it means to be a Christian is you can't have fun, right? Their interpretation is God wants His people to have no fun. So it's, it's drawing into question God's own motivation, why He would do things. And the enemy goes on and he says, your, your eyes will be opened. He knows your eyes will be opened. Isn't it good to have your eyes opened? Isn't it good to see and to know? You know, don't we tell people, open your eyes, don't you see what's going on? It's a good thing to have our eyes opened. And the enemy's presentation, his argument here is, God knows that your eyes will be opened and you'll see things you've never seen before. You'll know things you've never known before. And it's going to be wonderful. God knows. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God. You yourself will become like Him. You see, you see God, is, God is, is, is protective of His position. He's, he's, he's touchy about it because He knows that if you eat of that fruit, that, that you will become like Him. You will be raised up to a level like Him, and, and, and He doesn't want that. He wants to hold you down. You see, it's an attack on God's character. He knows <clears throat> that when you take of that, your eyes will be opened. You will become like God in some senses, and you will know good and evil. You'll be able to, to understand. You'll be able to, to see and know things that only God knows and sees right now, but, but you can be like Him, and you'll be like Him. And, 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 and God just, he's, he's a little touchy about that and doesn't want you to be like Him. And so that's why He gave you that, that, that crazy rule about that tree. Notice He's enticing them with what they will get. Enticing her with what she will get, what they will get as a result of taking of this tree. Notice He never mentions in there what they're going to lose. And isn't that the nature of temptation? Hey, if you do this thing, this is what you'll get. Yeah, it's going to be wonderful, and you'll get this thing. Never a mention about what you're going to lose, whether it's your integrity, whether it's your family, whatever thing in life it's going to be. And for Eve, whether it's your relationship with God, you're going to lose that. It's, it's your life you will lose. That part, he flat denies. That's kind of the way temptation works. So the words here that, 
that uh, the enemy speaks have, a, have a, a ring of truth, have an aspect, an element of truth, but it's cast in such a way that it defames God's character. That's the way the enemy strikes. That's the way the attack of the enemy comes on the woman. And so, uh, for the remainder of our time now, I want to look at some helpful defenses. Helpful defenses, uh, because <clears throat> we are not Eve standing in the garden. We are not in this, you know, talking to the, the serpent and all of those sorts of things. But, but we do need to learn some defenses, because the way temptation happened here is the way temptation happens now. Very similar. First of all, we need to understand that there are different kinds of questions. I said in the beginning that, you know, we, we often say there's no bad question. Well, there are bad questions. There are bad questions. Uh, first of all, good questions. There are kinds of questions of God's Word that, that they're seeking understanding. They're, they're, they believe, I, I believe God's Word, I just don't know what it says. I don't, I don't understand. I don't, I don't get this, so I question, right? That's a good kind of questioning. We encourage that kind of questioning. If you have questions about how this works in the Bible, about, about how that thing can be or, or, or how to understand this topic, those are excellent questions. I encourage those questions. Ask a million more just like that. They're questions seeking to understand, seeking to, to, to believe and know and obey and, and, and rejoice in what's found in Scripture. I just, I just want to know what it is and I want to know how to understand it. Those are fabulous questions. I encourage those all day long. Those are the good questions. They're, this person's trying to understand the Bible and God and faith and Christianity. These are genuine questions, the questions that faithful people have. And just because you have these kinds of questions does not mean that you are an unfaithful person. It does not mean that you are even necessarily any kind of doubting person. This is, this is seeking to understand answers to these questions. These are normal for Christians. And we need to answer them as best we can. And it's a joy when I get to answer those kinds of questions. We were talking in Sunday school about sometimes our kids ask questions and we just have no idea. The, the, I don't know how to answer that question. What a joy it is when they ask a question, we know the answer, we can point them to Christ. We can help them understand perhaps a difficult uh, bi biblical teaching or, or how life works. We love to answer those kinds of questions. So, for example... Such a question might be, the Bible says, and we looked at this in our, in our evening service this past week, I thought this was fabulous. The Bible says, God created the world in just, a, just a few thousand years ago. How then is it, how can it be that we see light from stars that are millions of light years away? The math doesn't seem to work. If God only created this earth and, and all things a few thousand years ago, how is it that we can see light that has to have traveled for millions of years to have gotten here? How can that be? Well, there's, there are answers to that question. And that's a question that says, I, don't, I can't get the math to work. How does that work? Well, the answer that they gave was that uh, perhaps when God was creating those stars, He brought their light to us much faster so that those stars would be seen on earth the day they were created. Does God have the ability to do that? Sure. Right? But see, that's a question that's a genuine question. And so we do our best to answer such a question. And that's a, a possible answer. I thought that was helpful. But there's another kind of questioning, and that kind of questioning is intended to lead people away from the Bible, to teach that it is not true. These are cynical questions. They're intended not to build up faith, but to destroy faith, to, to undermine the credibility of Scripture. 
They're cynical. And we need to be able to recognize the difference between these two. And this, this second type needs more than just an answer to be given. Very often, the presuppositions behind the answer, the, the assumptions behind the question are the things that we need to call into question. We need to look at the premise. We need to look at the purpose of the question, and we need to identify, you know, you're just asking me that because you want to uh, discredit the Bible. So, for example, do you really believe God created the whole world in just seven days? What's that question intended to do? To make you feel like a little bit of a, you know, bonehead that you, I read it and I believed it and it says it, right? So that it's intended to, to make you feel less like, like, you're, like, you're, like, you're, like you're dumb. You're not a very sophisticated person. See, that's, that's the intent behind that question. That's not looking for information. That's trying to destroy. Did God really uh, create the whole world in just seven days? So what's your answer to that? No. He did it in six. <laughs> So we need to recognize those two different types of questions. And the enemy is not asking questions to find out information. We have to be able to recognize there are different kinds of questions. Some are genuine questions that are consistent with faith, and some are really meant to tear down and undermine faith. Recognize the difference. And we answer those two very differently. Secondly, a second defense for us. <clears throat> we need to know the Bible well enough to know when it is being misrepresented. She should have been able to say, whoa, I object to the way you're represent, representing God's Word. Right off the bat. What do you mean, did God really say? Yeah, God said. Let's, let's talk about that. And first of all, he, he, he didn't say that we could have lunch. He said we had this abundant provision. She should have represented God's Word correctly. She should have recognized when it was being misrepresented. And that's a challenge for you and me. When we hear someone using Bible-like language, Usually it's on Facebook. Usually it's on YouTube or something like that. And they quote a verse. And, oh, okay, that's a Christian. And that person knows what he's talking. We need to know God's Word well enough to say, yeah, he said Bible-ish things and got it all wrong. We need to be able to recognize when God's Word is being misrepresented. Thirdly, we need to beware any representation of God's Word that calls into question God's motives or God's character. You would think that, that Eve, knowing God the way she did, would have been able to recognize, wait a minute, you're calling God petty. God's not petty. <clears throat> she should have been able to recognize that. Beware any representation of God's Word that calls into question God's motives or God's character. Fourthly, we must be very careful to understand and represent the Bible accurately. The woman would have been very helped had she had an accurate, clear understanding of God's Word and be able to represent it in an accurate, clear, concise fashion. The flaws in her understanding and presentation of God's Word are what gave the enemy handholds to wrestle her down. And so where you and I are lacking a clear understanding, we need to be seeking that clear understanding. And usually that means we've got to ask those questions and say, I don't know, I need to know. How does this and that work together? We need to ask those questions. We need to understand and represent the Bible accurately. Fifthly, 
we need to be very careful of not liking what the Bible teaches or commands or forbids. We may, we may come to understand something and not like it. That's what the woman had going on. She, she had an understanding. It was a little skewed as we've seen. She had an understanding of, of what God was like and what His Word was, and she didn't like it. She, she, she came to feel like God was being stingy. God's being petty. God's keeping good stuff from us. Why is God doing that? You see, she didn't like God's Word. She didn't like who God was. And we need to be very, very careful of not liking what the Bible teaches or commands or forbids. We may, we may hear about it and we may not like it initially. We need to recognize, uh-oh, I firmly believe this is what God's Word says and I don't like it. I've got a problem. Maybe it's about suffering. Maybe, maybe you don't like the fact that the Bible talks about the fact that there will be suffering in the life of the Christian. And you're thinking, well, I see it clearly written. I don't like that. I don't like that. Yeah, the Bible says it, and I, I have to say it sort of begrudgingly, but I don't like it. Okay, I understand that's the natural human response, and it is something for us to work through. That if our good Father in heaven has decreed that His precious blood-bought children, for whom His Son gave His life, in whom He has placed His Spirit, if it's, if it's God's decree that we suffer as Christians, it is for our good. And I may not throw a party when suffering happens. I may weep. But I dare not have the attitude, like Eve's attitude, of dislike of what God says, of dislike what God commands, what God decrees. I need to be very careful of that. I need to recognize it, and I need to work against it that dislike that I have. It's part of being in submission to God, in submission to who God is. Maybe it's, maybe it's that area of suffering. Maybe it's, maybe it's an area that's very different. Maybe it's men's and women's roles in the family or the church. Or maybe it's the Bible's teaching on homosexuality or, or abortion or many, many other things. We see that God's Word says it, and we just don't like it. We need to be very careful when we find ourselves in that place. Sixthly, let's trust God and His Word. Where we don't understand it, the problem is with us, not with God's Word. Let's trust it. Had she leaned upon what God had actually said, and understood, had she trusted and had she, she, had she been faithful in believing and loving this God and His prohibition because God is doing what is good and right, there would have been no place for cracks. We need to love and to trust God's Word. And I th we see at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, and this is where things go south in the whole story of the Bible, don't they? Because sin enters the picture and, and all that goes on here. We see, we see right here the, the doubting of what God has commanded and what the consequences will be. Notice that the first doctrine that's uh, attacked in the Bible, the first doctrine that uh, comes under the assault of the enemy is judgment, that there will actually be uh, consequences. There will be a day when we will stand before God and, and, and man and his, uh, as God's creation will give account. 
That's the first thing that comes under attack. Right here in, in, the, in the midst of this first conversation. But she was tempted about, she was tempted not to believe what God had said and, and tempted not to, not to uh, uh, obey God. And of course, that's, that's the way she fell. But did you know we're also tempted not to believe God's Word in the promises given? We have a short little episode right here that's terrible and bears consequences for the rest of reality, but in just the next couple of paragraphs, you're going to have God give a promise that there will be a seed of the woman who will come, and He will crush the head of the serpent. There will be a Redeemer promised right here. And folks, not only do we need to believe what God's Word says in its, in its prohibitions, its declaration of what is true and what consequences will be, we also need to believe God's Word in the promise that's given. The promise of this Redeemer, the one who crushes the head of that serpent. This is a call to faith right here. That here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, and that promise is given, I wonder how often they doubted after that. How often they, they faced temptation to doubt what God's Word had said, to doubt that God would fulfill His promise. As child after child and generation after generation is born, as the world is destroyed by a flood and one family continues on, as, as generation goes into next, turns into the next millennium, and they're waiting for the seed of the woman who's going to come on the scene finally and, and, and crush the head of the serpent. I wonder how often they doubted that. I wonder how often you and I doubt that. I wonder how often we lose sight and we think, well, yeah, in some distant way, but is He really my Redeemer? When Jesus came on the scene and, and, and it's clear that He is the one who, who goes into the wilderness and deals with the serpent, deals with the temptation, but succeeds, trusts God's Word, by the way, who lives a life of obedience, not disobedience like Adam and Eve and you and me, who dies on that cross to bear the penalty for, for my sin, for your sin. God raises him up on the third day. Clearly, this is the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. And that gospel comes to us, and we're faced with whether we're going to believe God's Word or not. That if I will put my faith in Jesus, my Redeemer, that I will... I will have redemption in Him, that I will find my sins put away and punished in Him, and I will find His righteousness credited to me. How often do we doubt that? And even now, in our Christian lives, is God's righteousness really credited to me? Maybe I better scoop up and pile up some of my own so that I can impress God, so that I can finally know God's smile by doing the right thing enough. We question, we doubt God's promise. Christian, you and I need to trust God and His Word. Jesus really has accomplished it. Jesus really has lived the life of obedience, died the sacrificial death in our place so that we have life in Him. We have forgiveness and righteousness in Him, right standing before God because of what He's done. And so... You and I this morning, the call is to believe God's Word. The call is to trust that what God says is true. I don't understand it. The problem is here. The problem is not here. And when I am tempted to forget that promise, 
that starts in 315 and is culminated at the resurrection of Christ, I need to be reminded of what Jesus has done. And so I remind you this morning what Christ has done. He really has paid that penalty. He really has crushed the head of that serpent who snuck into the garden, who was craftier than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, who spoke such lies, such destructive lies and questions to the woman in the garden. His head has been crushed. Because of that, you and I in Him have life. So let's trust God's Word. Let's believe what God has said. It is true. Let's not follow the path of the woman who, who, who allowed the, the, the little cracks and the questions to become bitterness and, 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 and ultimately flat rejection of what God had said, believing the lies of the enemy. And so my desire is that we would love and trust God's Word. These are the tactics of the enemy. These are the way he sneaks in, and it's, it's no different now. In your life and in my life, when we're, when we're tempted to some sin, when we're tempted to some disbelief, there's a promise made of what we will have if we follow that temptation, what we will get. Meanwhile, he's, he's hiding from us what the consequences will be. And especially that is true where it comes to the gospel. The enemy will lie to us about the gospel. He will lie to us, even as Christians, to try and make us forget about the gospel and focus instead upon ourselves or, or something else. But let's believe God's Word. Let's believe the truth of this promise accomplished for us in Christ. And let's rejoice in the life we have in Him. Let's believe God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that we have Your Word in front of us and this is a sobering text and it's a sobering topic. Father, we confess that often we have been tempted to disbelieve your word. We've been tempted to disobey your word. We've been tempted to disbelieve your promises. Father, we rejoice that Your Word is true, that Your promises never fail, that You accomplish Your purposes and have done so in Christ. And so though we face the daily challenges, uh, temptations to sin or to disbelieve, to doubt, to even perhaps in certain ways defame Your Word or defame Your character, we rejoice in Jesus, that seed of the woman who has come on the scene and dealt with this serpent who brought lie in the first place, brought murder in the first place. And we rejoice that He has indeed crushed the head of that serpent. Our Lord Jesus reigns. He, the seed of the woman, has purchased for us redemption. We rejoice in that. Father, I pray that each of us going out, when we're faced with uh, the, the, the temptation, the, the lies of the enemy, that uh, surely we're not good enough to, to, uh, to be a Christian. Surely uh, the, the, the sin in our lives means that there's no way we possibly could have been redeemed. That the, the lies that come in that would cause us to, 
to recast your word, to recast the promises, to, to make them into something different, that we would recognize those lies for what they are, that we would look to Jesus, our Savior, that we would confess our need, our weakness, our own failure, and we would rejoice in faith in Him, that in Him we have life because of what He has done. Help us, Father, to recognize Your Word as true, reliable, holy, unfailing, and living and active. Father, thank You. Thank You that You speak truth and that we have it in our hand in this Bible. I ask for Your blessing on each of these this week. And as we face those temptations, may we recognize them for what they are. And may we trust your word. May we believe your word and believe you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God bless you all. There will be a family who would like to pray with you up here. Uh, children, if you want to go get your blast zone checked, you can do that over here. But God bless you all. Trust God's Word. You're dismissed. Mm -hmm.